All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey. And far too often, we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, my name is Josh Patterson. I'm one of your hosts. Marty is out in Alaska, I believe, today. I don't know what people do in Alaska, but that's where he's at. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I do have a guest with me today, Megan Chance. Did I get it right? Yeah, you did it perfectly. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, how are you today? Um, I'm doing really well. My book comes out tomorrow as the time of this recording. So uh, feeling good, a little nervous, um, but overall, overall pretty good. Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's exciting. It's like, I mean, just this past year or so talking to different authors and stuff, mm-hmm. trying to write books and release them in a pandemic um, doesn't seem like the funnest thing in the world, but it's also super exciting and really cool <laughs> at the same yeah. time. <laughs> it's not fun. So those other authors are right. It's it's a lot. It's it's yeah. It's it's interesting time. We're living in interesting times. So we all are. Whether or not you're writing a book, it's been challenging, I'm sure, for all of us. So yeah, most definitely. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Well, good deal. Well, can you just for people who might not be familiar with you, can you just share a little bit about like uh who you are, what kind of things you do? Yeah. Um, my name is Megan Chance, as you already said. Um, you perfectly pronounced my last name, which um, is pretty great because I had a lot of people, even when I like told them, still got it like Chance or something. So yeah, that was cool. great. Um, I'm not offended, of course, um, because my last name is hard. Um, I am a podcaster. So like you, I host a podcast called Faith and Feminism. Um, it's all about reclaiming uh, feminism for the Christian faith. Um, and I started that podcast because after working as a missionary with sexually exploited and exploited women, um, I realized that the biblical gender roles that we were taught in the church were complicit in their oppression and that I was being complicit in their oppression by submitting to these gender roles or enforcing these gender roles. And so I quit my job as a missionary and began the Faith and Feminism podcast. And I also wrote a book about it called Women Rising, um, which I think we'll be talking about today. But yeah, and other than that, um, my husband and I, live, we've been married for four years. We live in Athens, Georgia. We have two dogs. So nice. yeah. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's um, so I have no idea how old you are, but my guesses were pretty close in age. I've been married for about, it'll be five years in July. Oh. And we have three dogs. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one more thing. So it's one more. Yeah. yeah I'm not trying yeah. to, to upstage you or anything. Yeah. It just happened to yeah. work, <laughs> work out that way, but that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for agreeing to hang out with us. Um, or from in this case, me. Um, mm-hmm. but the another thing that we like to ask people, and it's kind of silly, uh, but we like to ask, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a fun question, but also like I am not into ice hockey, but I am from Denver. So I'm gonna say the avalanche because Sweet. I have gone to a couple avalanche games in my day. So that feels like something. So I don't even know if they're good anymore. Are they good anymore? They won the Stanley Cup. Um, but I don't know if they're still good. Yeah, they're still they're actually really good. Um, oh. they're they're kind of favorites right now. Um, oh. up there they have some pretty good chances of winning this year i'm um, actually the guy who i started this podcast with forever ago andy he's a uh, huge avalanche fan oh uh, yeah so they're doing good i'm a washington capitals fan mm. um yeah and marty my co-host i have to represent for him he's a chicago blackhawks fan uh even though the caps are better so avalanche <laughs> is a good answer though <laughs> great well that's good i you know i was a lot more into it when i lived in colorado but uh, there's not a lot of ice hockey in Georgia. So, no, um, <laughs> there's definitely not. Haven't really stayed in touch with what's going on there. Cool. All right. Well, one more question before we get into mm-hmm. uh, today's topic, which we're going to, like you mentioned, we're going to talk about your new book. Uh, what do you think is the most important aspect of your faith that you had to rethink? <sighs> I think the most important aspect of my faith that I had to rethink was this idea that my theology had to fit in the boxes that were handed to me. Um, So that's to say, I grew up in a conservative evangelical denomination. And while I was grateful that they introduced me to Jesus, they also introduced me to some other really harmful things like uh, patriarchal gender roles, which they called biblical gender roles, or also known as complementarianism. And also, um, you know, some white supremacy, some white saviorism that I definitely picked up from the church. And so I think the biggest thing is like, my faith doesn't have to look like John MacArthur's or John Piper's or all of these big name theologians and that uh, my faith is just as valid as theirs. Um, It's not less valid because I don't have a platform and I'm not a white man and I don't have wealth and I don't pastor a church. I think if we could all just expand our minds a little bit to know that um, each person is made in the image of God and as such has something to teach us about the character of God. um, I think that the church would be a lot healthier of a place if we empowered people who had different perspectives and came from different backgrounds or, you know, different um, gender identities or gen- different races. Um, I think the church would be a lot more of a uh, friendly and more reflective of the gospel. So um, I think that's probably, if, if I had to sum up the biggest concept in a nutshell, it's rethinking that my faith has to look exactly like theirs to be valid. Nice. I love it. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that's like a, can be a pretty uh, dense or intense question Mm -hmm. uh, to like throw out right off the bat, but I feel like it's, I don't know, it's just helpful for not only for, you know, myself to get to know you a little bit better, Mm -hmm. but also for our listeners to kind of, um, I think there's like an invitation kind of hidden in there when you can share Mm -hmm. your story with somebody and be willing to open up and do that, then people can find themselves there in your story as well. And then Mm -hmm. it just makes for such a, you know, much more relatable 
uh, conversation and listening experience. So thank you. Um, yeah, of course. Good deal. All right. Well, um, if you didn't know, you wrote a book. Um, recently. <laughs> <I> did. <laughs> you did. And it's right here. It's, it's beautiful. Actually, I love the, the cover art and the, the feel of the, the I, know. I know. It's such a quirky thing to say. I know. Like, That's what I thought when I got so it cool. too. It feels like it has like texture to it. Yeah. 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 But it's called, it's called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed um, reading your book, although it wasn't an easy book to read in mm-hmm. the sense of like content um, was just, I mean, mind blowing to me. Like mm-hmm. I had some kind of understanding of the extent of some of the issues that you had talked about, mm-hmm. um, but it just was like, holy crap, this is insane. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't easy to read, but I couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. So I'm excited that you uh, agreed to come and talk with us today. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for you to have me. And it's always so encouraging to hear that people like it, especially when men say they like it. Because <laughs> cool. um, I've, I've, you know, in my day, I've pissed off quite a few men. So sure. it's, it's always great to know that there's men that appreciate it and are learning from it. So I'm really glad that you took the time to read it. So yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Well, I guess then um, just a, well, it's a seemingly easy question, but maybe it's not. Um, to to kind of kick us off, why did you decide to write this book? And mm-hmm. who kind of did you have in mind when you were writing it? Yeah, that is such a good question. Um, so why did I write the book? So we're going to have to, you know, backtrack a little bit into my story. Um, I was raised in the conservative evangelical church. If you, you've already heard me like talk a little bit about that, but specifically I was taught in a context that as I, as a woman was to serve the men in my life, um, I was taught purity culture, I was taught modesty culture. And ultimately I feel like I was being groomed to be a good silent submissive housewife. All of my teachings of my childhood focused on that. Um, How can I serve the men in my life? How can I make them more comfortable? This is what good godly women do. And you certainly don't resist. You always submit. You always, um, I was almost like, like, and this is something I keep on hearing again and again, but even today I hear this, this idea um, that, uh, you know, a lot of people like to use the analogy, especially when people are getting married, that uh, the bride, um, they kind of paint women as as the bride of Christ, which in a way I think is is representative, but then they paint men as Christ. (laughs) And it's like saying that men are these deities in their marriage. And sadly, that is what I was essentially taught is that I wasn't capable of having my own relationship with God, that my relationship had to come through the men around me because as as a daughter of Eve, um, I was easily deceived and I couldn't be trusted. Um, and so I kind of grew up with this thinking. And then while it like always sat wrong with me, I didn't necessarily see the harms and not being exposed to anything else. I knew that it hurt me, but maybe there was something wrong with me that it didn't fit, fit right because it seemed to fit with everyone else. And so as I grew older, I, I went to college, I got a degree in journalism, hated, <laughs> I worked for a newspaper and hated it. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to serve God. Um, so uh, the the way that I was told I could do that was essentially missions because I couldn't teach and I couldn't preach and I couldn't lead as a woman, but I could be a missionary. So I joined this program called the World Reach, which was an 11 country, 11 month mission trip. And very quickly, I was confronted with the way that women were treated around the world and in the most gross and disgusting ways. And so um, 
I encountered, you know, even more patriarchal mindsets than I had even been exposed to growing up. And then I, I, I had women come or girls, I should say, come forward and tell me that they had been survivors of female genital mutilation, uh, that, uh, you know, all of their external genitalia had been removed and, and, and how they're starting to question that. And it was, you know, told to them that this was like a rite of passage, that this was writing good. And I said, like, some other things happened to me, like bad things. I think they were bad things, but I was told they were good. And I started to, I think, begin to question. I also noticed that in hand in hand with these um, practices came the idea that women were supposed to stay home, that they were supposed to submit to their husbands, that they had to fight to get an education. Um, and so this, this practice of female genital mutilation was not um, only uh, traumatic mentally or emotionally, it also was physically damaging, increased the likelihood of death during childbirth, it created um, a host of other health problems. And sometimes girls even bled to death during the procedure, and it wasn't done by a professional or anything like that. But I noticed, again, that these, 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 um, these practices came hand in hand with gender roles that I was familiar with. Um, and so I started to question, I think that was the beginning of me starting to question it. And, you know, several months later, I encountered women, or I should say girls again, that were being trafficked from Nepal for sex, sex trafficked, and, and being encountered with ha- how uh, the men, you know, would take their sons in this area to have their first experience with women who had literally been taken from their homes and forced into sex slavery and and just the, the depravity of that situation and 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 then I'd keep going and I'd find more women being trafficked for sex and more women surviving rape and more women uh, living with these extremely patriarchal gender norms and it was through this process and I think I had been I mean I really lit a fire in my heart for women and I started to fight against I guess patriarchal, I wouldn't have called it patriarchy at the time, but fighting against these patriarchal norms for them, but not realizing that I was actually complicit in these teachings because it was something that I was like, you know, I needed to be submitted to the men in my life and I needed to be quiet and silent and not preach and all these different things. And so um, it wasn't until I was in, um, I was working with women who had been trafficked in the Philippines and I was talking to a John, a buyer of women and he asked us why we were there and we were partnering with an organization that, uh, per, you know, helped women by providing a college education should they choose it and helping their dependents to, you know, um, while they went to college so that, you know, oftentimes these women end up in the sex trade because they have no other options to provide for their family or for their children or whatever. And so um, I was talking to this guy and he asked us why we're there. And we told him, you know, helping these women, if they choose to like join a safe house and get a college education. And we asked him, why are you here? And he told us because um, women here are raised right. They know how to respect men. um, And women in the United States are too uppity. And I don't get the respect that I deserve in the United States. So I come here to purchase it from these women. And it was in that moment in his monologue about how women don't respect men like they should, that something sounded really familiar to me. And it just clicked 
Oh my gosh, this man is talking just like the evangelical pastors I grew up with. He's talking just like the marriage books I was gifted. You know, I was about to get married at this point. Um, uh, these these books that said that men need respect above all else and women need to submit to them and be sexually available to them. And it was like I was seeing this man who was buying women, exploited women, literally said, I get here, I come here to get the respect I deserve. And it wasn't the first time I had heard something like this out of a John's mouth, but it was the first time I started to connect it. And it was altering, it was life altering for me, realizing that these evangelical context, I mean, if they weren't responsible for it, they at least talked exactly the way that abusive men did. And why is that? And starting to ask that question. And so I quit my job. (laughs) I started a podcast called Faith and Feminism because ultimately, like if we're asking the question, why are women, what harm are women meeting around the world? It's oftentimes at the the hands of men. Why, why would men harm women? Why is this happening? And the, and I think that it has so much to do with the patriarchal gender norms that we've been given both within and without the church. And I'm not the only one that thinks this. There's a lot of research to support this. There's a psychoanalyst. Her name is Lynn Yonak. And she writes all about how sexual assault is not about sexual feelings. It's actually due to power differentials. And here the church is promoting extreme power differentials. And so I just couldn't be complicit in that system anymore. I quit my job, started a podcast called Faith and Feminism and wrote the book. Um, and so to answer your second question, who is this book for? Uh, that's a great question because I think I've suffered <laughs> a lot at the hands of Christians. Um, I've been told, uh, oh my gosh, the things I've been told are just terrible. I've been told, you know, that I'm going to hell. I had a man the other day send me an email Um, after I wrote an article about how gender roles contribute to abuse, he sent me an email and said that he could tell from my, well, first of all, he's telling me to repent a lot because I needed Jesus and I was going to hell. But then he told me he could tell by my face that I was a whore and that if I hadn't been raped yet, that was an injustice and that I deserved to be raped. Um, So this is like, this is not uncommon. This is not the first time I've experienced the violence of men when I pushed against my gender role. But this is just an illustration. Like his first half of the email was all about how I needed to find Jesus. And the second half of his email was saying I deserve to be raped. And so this idea of women stepping out needing to be rape is not just in the evangelical church. There are stories and articles where, for example, there's this woman raped to death in India in I think 2013 on a public bus. And when they interviewed her rapist, they said that the rapist said um, she wasn't, she should have been at home like a good girl, keeping the home tidy because she was out and about I was teaching her a lesson and she deserved what she got essentially. And that's what I was like, I will have obviously haven't been raped um, to death like that woman, but I have, you know, experienced sexual assault. I have been a survivor of that. And I have been um, a survivor of men telling me that I deserve physical and sexual violence because I'm not behaving as I should. Um, And so I've, I've received a lot of pushback speaking about these subjects um, and so when you ask me, who is this book for? It's, it's not for them. <laughs> you can, you don't need to read this. If you, if feminism offends you, please keep scrolling. Keep like, don't list. I don't want to engage with you. I don't have that kind of energy. Um, but it is for women who have been raised in this context, who have been survived. And for the men 
um, or pastors or anyone that it's willing to listen to see, oh, maybe this, this, this ideology is harmful. Maybe it does have bad fruit. And so for me, it's anyone that's willing to listen, but if you're not willing to listen, please just keep walking because I don't have the energy to, um, yeah, set yourself straight. (laughs) So, um, that's basically who the book is for. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. It does. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, it's just so crazy. Cause just kind of reflecting back on my own past experience, mm-hmm. I, the first church I remember attending as a little kid had a female pastor. It was a Methodist mm-hmm. church. And it wasn't until my family left the Methodist church to go to the Baptist church down the road because they had the wonders of, you know, early 2000s contemporary Christian music um, that I started to encounter these kind of things that you're talking about Mm -hmm. regards to patriarchy. And um, like the, it was just very strange to me when it started happening. And, you know, my youth pastor would be like, no, women can't be pastors. Mm -hmm. Like, there's one over there. (laughs) (laughs) I I was in her church. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, such a, a weird thing for me mm. to kind of wrestle with but then even like so for my wife when we um got married the person that we had our, our wedding was my youth pastor growing up um mm-hmm. and even though him and I disagree so very much on so many things he's a wonderful person mm-hmm. that I owe so much to and I'm you know very gracious that he performed our wedding ceremony mm-hmm. but he did like premarital counseling stuff with us and like I Noelle and I had conversations before it even happened. Like <laughs> they're going to say some crazy shit and yeah. <laughs> kind of have to let it go. And mm-hmm. like, I like know that I don't think or believe those things. Mm-hmm. I know that you definitely don't know. And so like, we mm-hmm. can kind of let those things go, but it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's crazy. And then it's also um, some of the things too, that it, it reminds me of is, you know, I, I haven't had the experiences that you've had, you know, mm-hmm. um, like out working with sexually exploited um, mm-hmm. women or people like that. But the the only kind of experiences I've had that are far less extreme, but I still think, um, I don't want to say just as damaging, but are mm-hmm. still very damaging is I think back to my time in college. Um, so I went to a small Christian private school called Messiah College, mm-hmm. um, a super cool school. I, I enjoyed it. They were not complimentarian by any means mm-hmm. but there were a lot of students who were sent there that very much were mm-hmm. and to see so many of my classmates that were in these ministry classes with me um that were like female students who were freaking brilliant and like could preach their socks off or whatever you want to say mm-hmm. imposing these things on themselves because that's the environment that they came from yeah. and like even in a space where they were free to engage and you know be everything god created them mm-hmm. to be still being sucked into that mm-hmm. you know op- oppressive nature is just i don't know that those things still make me very sad <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean i i think it is important that we talk about this because like i mean i thought you brought up such a good point that you had a woman pastor yeah down the street like this this idea like i remember when i for this is not the best term, but came out as a feminist, right? Like that's of course not um, the same as, as, as someone coming out as queer, but I had so many people tell me I wasn't a Christian and that I couldn't be a Christian. And the way that 
um, this biblical gender rule has almost been like rewritten into scripture when it's, it's not like biblically, you know, we could talk about that for a while, but the fact that it's not like you've changed the gospel, not to being just Jesus. Now the gospel is Jesus and you need to be a submissive housewife and you have to be against queer people and you have to be a conservative. Like they, there's just so much like caveats that they added to the gospel, which I don't think is at all reflective of Christ. And we could give into that. But I also want to point out the fact that we've been seeing a lot of sexual assault scandals and maybe even sexual assault is too soft of a word. For example, Josh Duggar, just, you know, he was raised in a very Baptist environment, claims to be very Baptist. Um, he was just arrested for child porn and child porn is not even the best word for this because what he was arrested for was the sexual assault of toddlers being videotaped that he was getting sexual gratification from. Like, this is not, this is depraved. This is just so far depraved. It it makes me so angry, but that, I mean, there's an example of this man raised in this context, who's still not facing, who's facing no consequences because when the first time it happened he his sisters you know said he had been sexually assaulting them as children and he faced no consequences for that and uh the the way that they're telling (laughs) the way the church handles this is they said oh get him a wife so he can get his sexual urges out and then he won't be depraved anymore um obviously this isn't working and then the wife is being told that she's responsible for his pornography addiction which is um, hearkening back to purity culture that we've taught is we've been taught that like, as long as a man, uh, has a wife that's sexually available, he will not stray. Like how many women are told this, like have sex with your husband three times a week and he won't watch pornography and he won't cheat on you and all this stuff, but maybe it's not her fault, no matter what he does. And that's up to him. And, and it goes back to even when we were kids being taught, like you need to cover up all of your skin. Uh, so a man doesn't feel like uh, sexually tempted by you and he won't do bad things to you. And that's something else I talk about in my book is this idea that like my whole purity was all like I was supposed to obsessively protect. And not only was my purity so important, but I was likened to an object. I was, you know, an Oreo until I did something sexual and I was a licked Oreo or I was a spit and cup or all of these different analogies. But the whole message was that my body didn't belong to me. It belonged to the men who did something to me. And if I did something before, even if it wasn't my fault before I got married, I would be worthless to my husband. And so we have these ideas where we're teaching that women are responsible for the urges of men, that they need to be covered up. And we see this, and it bleeds over into our justice system. The fact that just Josh Duggar just got out because it's like apparently not a big deal that he's watching the sexual, I mean, this is sex, this is child sex trafficking. That's what it is. Um, it's not a big deal. And he got let out. And um, the fact that even, you know, there's other cases, like we have the case of Brock Turner. Um, and so often, I mean, this is not necessarily a religious story, but so often uh, women are being blamed. Like it was her fault because she was drinking. Well, he was drinking and that absolves him of his responsibility or like, it's just, it's just so backward. And the fact that he was witnessed raping someone by bystanders, like this is the most tight, like what more evidence do you need? You have evidence of him raping a woman outside and there are witnesses yet 
They're, the case drew on forever. They didn't want to ruin his future. And in the end, he only served three months for his crime. I think it's showing us that we live in a society, not just in the church, but in the world as a whole that doesn't value or believe women, that doesn't hold men responsible for the violence they incur against women. And I think it's something that we need to change. And even if we're talking statistically, one in three women in the United States is their survivor of assault. One in between one and five and one and six is a survivor of rape or attempted rape. Um, and if we throw in another statistic, only five out of 1000 rapists face jail time. So um, we're just we're just in a society that doesn't believe women, that doesn't value the stories of women and often lets men go free. And I, I do think um, some of that, at least some of it's tied back to the church because we're seeing the way the court systems are teaching teaching. Uh, treating Josh Duggar right now. And then we have stories like Robbie Zacharias. Like this is not a one in a thing. Um, I actually started writing an article about how these men are like not one-off cases, but maybe a product of our own culture. And I had almost finished it. And I, and I was like, well, I feel like I need like one more story. And I just sat on it for two, like it was literally, I had to wait two weeks before Josh Duggar came out. And I was like, I knew that would happen. And I know we're going to keep on hearing more and more stories like this until we we change the way we view women in the church and the way we view men in the church and um, stop creating these enormous power differentials, which so many studies say contribute to abuse. And so I really wish the church had better, but unfortunately, there's a lot of complicity um, in these harmful systems. And some, some cases are the greatest upholder of patriarchy um, in the United States. So it's it's sad. Yeah, um, a few things that come to mind. One of them is just the, I mean, I think you make such a good point. The people, I still am amazed when people freak out and they're like, whoa, no way. There, there was another sexual abuse mm -hmm. scandal within the church. Like this mega church pastor did this thing. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. The system, this isn't like a weird thing. Like this, yeah. is, the system that we have created is producing exactly what the mm -hmm. system is designed to produce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then people are surprised and they're like, oh, why did this happen? Um, and so I think you nailed it there. But one mm -hmm. one thing that you said a, a little bit before that um, in regards to how men and women are are, are talked about um, or even taught growing up in the mm -hmm. church. I remember um, growing up and for like as a dude, it was just like, OK, so you're going to be horny all the time mm -hmm. and just don't masturbate. And one day, like you can have sex with your wife as much as you want, like you're a wild stallion. It'll be wonderful. It'll be great. Mm -hmm. That's and like it was it was almost the the sexual nature of a young man wasn't mm -hmm. like told it was disgusting or wrong. It was just, mm -hmm. hey, you have to keep this under wraps for now. And then one day mm -hmm. you can like go crazy. Mm -hmm. But when I noticed when they would talk to like my female friends, it was very different. It was like, right. no, you can't have sexual arousal. All mm -hmm. of those things are evil. Mm -hmm. They're wicked. They're disgusting. Mm -hmm. They're gross. And then it was if men screwed up like in youth group or whatever, if a guy, you know, had sex with a girl or did something mm -hmm. like that, then it was like, oh, well, you're just a stallion. You made a mistake. Yeah. Like, you act on your urge. But as a female, it's like, well, mm -hmm. now you're a piece of shit. Like, yep. you're goods. you're not good. You're terrible. Mm -hmm end of story and like that's just so damaging and some of the things that amongst others that stood out to me in your book was mm -hmm. when you like you wrote personal stories about yourself mm -hmm. um experiencing uh sexual assault or various mm -hmm. things and then your immediate reaction was what did i do wrong to do yep. that mm -hmm. fucking blew my mind mm -hmm. like 
but then I was like, well, of course, of course, mm-hmm. that's what you were taught. It was exactly what I was taught. And that I have no words. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's literally what we're taught as, as young women growing up in the church, that our bodies are dangerous, that they're stumbling blocks and that men can't control themselves, which I, I mean, not only is this incredibly harmful to women, it's incredibly harmful to men, uh, to, <laughs> because there are more than, you know, I remember when I got married and I was like shocked that like my husband didn't want to like have sex every time he saw me naked. Like, Oh my gosh, you're not like having like a, I don't know, sex attack or something. Like I thought you were going to be taught, like uh, you're not this sex starved, like stallion for lack of a better term that I was taught. And that was shocking to me because for so long I was taught that men are this way and women are, you know, one way, but yeah, you talk about, um, in my book, I, I, I tell the first story story when I was sexually assaulted, I was 13 years old. Um, oh, you know, a couple of days previous, I had been told that my shirt, when I raised my hands, like showed a sliver of my stomach and I needed a change because it would make men do bad things. And I felt so much shame over that. And of course, wore nothing but baggy clothes. And then several days later, a man came up and grabbed my breast and ran away. And, uh, it was terrifying. And, and I can't even describe what it felt like in that moment, because not only was I scared and alone and had I been violated, but I thought all of that was my fault. And I didn't tell anyone because I thought it was my fault. That's what I was told literally several days before I was told that if I wore the wrong clothes, that bad things would happen to me and it would be my fault. And so I, even though I was like covered from head to toe, I thought some way this must've been my fault. And it took me a decade, a decade to get over the shame and tell someone what had happened to me. Um, and it wasn't the only time there's obviously I have, I have a lot of stories of having uh, men touch parts of my bodies, grope me without my permission, without my consent. Um, and even people in the church and then just kind of being taught like it, like that must've been your fault. You didn't do a good job. You, you weren't uh, protecting his eyes or his heart or whatever. Um, And I also want to talk about like how it's completely natural it is to have sexual urges when you're like 13 or 14 or whenever you're going through puberty. And uh, if we just talk to young boys about their sexual urges and say, Hey, this is natural and not condemned. I don't, I mean, I don't know where you stand, but I'm sex positive. So I don't think masturbation is a sin. Um, I could go into that. I think watching the exploitation and degradation and objectification of women while you masturbate is wrong. I don't think it's wrong to masturbate, but we won't necessarily get into that. But I think if we just learned how to have healthy conversations, this is a normal urge. This happens because you're going through puberty. There's hormones racing through your body for men and women. I had sexual urges, crazy sexual urges at the age of 13, but I also felt, well, not 13. I think I went through puberty a little bit later. So maybe like 14 or 15 when I started having those feelings, but I thought it was unnatural for me as a woman to have these. And so I just felt so much shame and just shoved it down and shoved it down. And it was, yeah, it was bad. And, and I think when we don't have these conversations, uh, you know, they're going to seek answers about what sex is like elsewhere. And I think that's how a lot of men and even women get into porn is because this is a natural urge I have. This is the only place I'm getting any information or any kind of release about this natural phenomenon that's happening to me. And then they're learning, uh, 
through porn about like domination and violent, violent stuff that could be happening there. Um, and so, um, I, I just think that if we just learned how to have conversations about sexual urges, um, that, you know, we've been a lot better of a place, but the church has just shamed it, shut down that conversation for women. That conversation was non non-existent. It sounds like for you, it was, you were told that, uh, you know, just keep it under locks. Like how are you supposed to keep it under locks for like 10 years when you're like getting all this build up? And so anyways, so all of that to say, I just think the church is doing a really poor job and it's not helping anything and abstinence only education um, it has shown that, it, it, you know, people did it to like prevent abortions, but it's actually increasing abortions. And that's another thing I want to talk about. <laughs> I don't, I don't write about this in my book, but let's talk about abortion while we're here. Um, this idea that pro-life, um, people, um, is really focused on the birth of a child and they don't ever ask the question, why would a woman want an abortion in the first place? Let's talk about the fact that the United States is the only wealthy country in the world that doesn't provide paid maternity leave by law. And so if a woman gets pregnant, it's very likely that she can lose her job. Let's talk about the fact I actually had, I've had women come to tell me um, that they got an abortion because they got pregnant when they were super young, like 14 or 15, and knew that they would be kicked out of their parents' home for falling, you know, for being sinful or whatever. And so they literally had a choice between being homeless or getting an abortion. And this was because the conservative church wasn't willing to have a conversation. They literally felt there was nothing else they could do. Let's talk about the fact that there's a lot of social programs and birth control and all these things that the pro-life movement condemns. Like we don't wanna necessarily help with struggling single moms. We don't wanna pay for food stamps or health, you know, all of these healthcare, whatever. Women don't get abortions because they hate their baby. Women get abortion because how are they supposed to provide for a child in a society that doesn't give them the tools or resources to do that and then condemns them for getting pregnant out of wedlock. There's a lot of reasons that are factoring into this. Instead of focusing on why a woman might have an abortion, they just shame and shame and shame and shame and shame. And shame just breeds secrecy and hide like in hiding. And so what's a way that you can hide a pregnancy is you get rid of it. And um anyways, sorry I got off onto that little tangent, but I just think in the church, we so often want to condemn things that we don't like without asking why this might be a thing in the first place and asking why, how can we fix it? We might want to condemn abortion without understanding why women might need it instead of helping them and meeting those needs so they don't feel like they have to get an abortion. Or why is there sexual assault? Is it because we're teaching a, a, a biblical gender roles that promote enormous power differentials, which have been shown power differentials is what contributes to sexual assault. Like we need to ask so many questions of why, why, why are people leaving the church? Why is there a mass exodus of millennials leaving the church? Well, if you ask them, it's because of homophobia and, and, um, patriarchy and racism all within our pews. And instead of asking why we just want to paint everything as evil instead of seeking to understand why someone might be leaving in the first place. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I want to ask the question, why are women harmed? Why are women harmed? And how are we complicit in this harm? Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> so many things that you said, like, <laughs> I know, like, I'm sorry. I no, can go ranting sometimes. You, so ho hopefully this doesn't come off as weird mm -hmm. me saying this, mm -hmm. but like you remind me a lot of myself 
mm-hmm. because like when I'm really passionate about something, mm-hmm. I I just <laughs> I go. And so I like I totally get it. And I, yeah. I think it's super cool. So Ooh, I'm here for well, it. Yeah. Um, but like it just brings back like so many like memories are like flooding my mm-hmm. head. I mean, um, and, and I mean it stood out too when you wrote in the book, but the point mm-hmm. about uh pornography, mm-hmm. um, and like if you know we're not having these conversations then you're going to seek for it somewhere else Mm -hmm. just purely anecdotally and out of my own evidential life that's why Mm -hmm. i started looking up stuff when i was Mm -hmm. young because Mm -hmm. i was told all this stuff was bad and evil and Mm -hmm. i was just curious yeah and like i had a so i'm not currently i don't currently work Mm -hmm. in a church anymore Mm -hmm. i recently have stepped out of that role Mm -hmm. um i i work in a brewery now Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but uh and let me tell you i don't mean this to sound shocking, but I feel like Jesus is there um, maybe a lot more. At least I see him around a lot more than yeah. I did when I was in the church. Um, mm-hmm. But anywho, uh, why was I going with that? Porn introduction. Oh, when I was a youth pastor, mm-hmm. I had a parent. Uh, we were having a conversation about um, actually this, talking to our, mm-hmm. our children about sex. Mm-hmm. And she said that one day uh, when her son... Uh, who was like nine or 10 at the time, she came home from work and saw mm-hmm. that, you know, opened her laptop and Google images was opened and it was a bunch of uh, women shirtless, mm-hmm. but but he had written the word boobs in the search thing mm-hmm. and it was spelled B-E-W-B-S, boobs. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's like such a, like, I laughed, she laughed, it was mm-hmm. funny, but like, there's such an innocence to that. Like you, do you see what I'm saying? Like this mm-hmm. young man, who was like told all this stuff innocently Mm -hmm. like dove in Mm -hmm. and that's I mean that's the same for me um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also you you reminded me of uh, a story I used to do this thing called chrysalis which was like a Christian retreat for teenagers and you could like go to it and then after you went to it you were invited to be like on the team to kind of like help put it on Mm -hmm. for other teenagers Mm -hmm. and I worked my way up to where I got a like lead my own weekend. Like I was Mm -hmm. the one in charge, whatever. Mm -hmm. And during that, it was a summer retreat and the place that we did it at, because like, for whatever reason, all Christian camps are like this, didn't have any air conditioning, (laughs) right? Like think back to Christian camp, no AC or no heat, like pick your poison. Mm -hmm. But uh, so obviously there were girls there Mm -hmm. wearing like tank tops or spaghetti Mm -hmm. straps or shorts Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm And um, guys, you know, were playing Frisbee or football and they didn't have a shirt on, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the guys who got in trouble it was the girls. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember being told that I, since I was the leader, had to get up in front of everybody that night and explain oh to the girls why what they were doing was causing their brothers in Christ to stumble at this Christian retreat. And like, there were, there was a huge argument about it, like on the back end, because mm-hmm. I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And like, there were like all, like there was a female SD, which was spiritual director pastor mm-hmm. on the weekend who was really pushing for it. And ultimately she's the one that got, that made me do it, which mm. surprises me. Um, but I remember one of the girls on the team, Emily getting so angry and upset um, during that conversation with like the leadership before I, I had to go tell all these girls that mm-hmm. they were whores, um, like just infuriated. Cause she was like, well, what about them with no shirt on? Or mm-hmm. she said, 
uh, what about all the guys wearing skinny jeans? Whenever they hug me, mm-hmm. I literally feel their penis all over my leg. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so like she was just so angry and like mm-hmm. that. I haven't thought about that in so long, but like mm-hmm. that memory just come came rushing yeah. out as you were talking. Um, and I remember my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but we were mm-hmm. dating. She was there when I had to give that talk and she was mm-hmm. so angry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's really interesting. I haven't I haven't thought about that in a long time. Yeah. How's that for a memory for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we all have these memories, which is why I wanted to write about it because I think so many of us have these common experiences. And, and I think women should be angry, should pay attention to that anger. Um, I mean, we already talked about why this is problematic. This idea that a woman's body is responsible for a man's thoughts or actions is just completely bogus. And um, why don't we, instead of like, ask the man, like investigate instead of just shoving these feelings down, if he is feeling aroused, okay, let's talk about it. This is a natural response. How can you, um, feel this feeling, but also respect that, that she's made in the Imago day. I, I would feel aroused when I saw men with their shirts off. Why was I never talked to, you know, why was it, why, what, why wasn't like a, a thing I want to like point out is like, oftentimes we see. Uh, most of the time, if you're looking at sexual assault and rape, it's men harming women. Th- that's not to say sexual assault against men doesn't happen. It certainly does. But if we're looking far and above, it's men harming women. And I think that has to do with our gender roles and our scripts that say that men can't control themselves. They've been literally been given a free pass and, and they haven't been taught about consent. I remember another time where um, I was sexually assaulted and it was a friend I trusted and I was like asleep in the car and he was like groping me and I froze because I didn't know what to do. And part of me still wonders, he was 13 years old. Um, maybe he thought we were romantic. I don't know. I have no idea what he thought. And I'm not excusing his actions because they were unacceptable. But part of me wonders if someone had a conversation with him and told him that this wasn't acceptable, I told him like how to respect a woman's body, what to do with his sexual urges. Maybe that could have been avoided. Maybe he would have known what to do when he felt like these sexual urges rising from a woman's body and knew how to respect me as a woman, except I wasn't a woman. I was 15. So I was a girl, but like, I think we just need to have these conversations because I don't even think that, um, I don't think he's an evil guy. Like I haven't talked to him since and I obviously don't feel safe, but like he was my friend and I never thought that could have ever happened from him. And, and, you know, all of these years since I keep on asking, like what led to these conditions? This doesn't seem like that. He doesn't seem like that type of person, which is so, so often what we hear, right? We hear these stories of sexual assault come forward and they're like, oh, so-and-so couldn't do that. That's like my dad. That's my pastor. That's my whatever. And I think we have to break out of that idea that good men could do bad things. Like men can do bad things, even if they're good to you and all these other people, um, they can do bad things. And we need to talk about this. And this is not a condemnation of men. It's it's asking why. Why is this happening? What part of our culture is producing it? And how can we change things? And I think specifically of the story of Kobe, I think it's Kobe Bryant. The, gosh, I'm so not good at sports, but the guy that recently died in the, the helicopter. Yeah. So he actually um, raped a woman, which is terrible. Um, he, I don't feel like he served the time that he should have served for his rape. 
but you can see that this man in so many other ways was a good man. He, he was, he was dedicated to um, helping his, his daughter's uh, basketball. He was empowering to women. He started all of these things for women. And I don't know if that was penance or whatever. I don't, I didn't follow his story closely, but I do know that good men can do bad things and good women can do bad things and good people can do bad things. And I think we have to get out of this binary that because I think I'm a good person, I can't do something harmful. So I'll talk for me as a, as a white woman, I have done racist things. I have said racist things. I have hurt people. I don't think that makes me a bad person. I think I I made mistakes. I was a product of a harmful culture of white supremacy and I'm repenting and I'm learning to do better. But I, um, I don't think that by the, if we just paint people as evil people, we can't learn and grow and do better because we're, we're, we're submitting to them to their past. And so I think we need to move past the binary that only bad men can do bad things. Um, because the truth is, and, and in my experience, someone that I thought was a good guy, and we can argue about whether or not he's a good guy, he was 13 years old. So there's at least some like I guess uh, there's some innocence there, I guess, like not, it's, it was still bad. Again, I'm not absolving the act of what happened to me, but he was 13 and we need to have this conversation. Why did a 13 year old, what was he being taught that taught him that he was entitled to my body? And, and that's a question that I think we need to keep asking. Why, why, why? Um, I don't, if I'm saying I'm being hurt by men, it doesn't mean I hate men. It means you're hurting me. Can we have a conversation about why this hurts us? How can we do better to function? And so when, you know, anti-racist educators ask white folks to do better, it's not saying I hate white people. It's saying you're hurting me. Let's come up with a system where you don't hurt me anymore. And that's, I think, basically what feminism is. It's coming up with a system where women aren't hurt. And there has to be a way for us to speak about the hurt that we might cause other people, the hurt that I have caused uh, people of color without people thinking, um, you know, that, that they hate me or whatever. And, and maybe sometimes there is hate, but they've survived. Uh, you know, if I was raped, I would probably hate my rapist. I haven't been raped, but like, you know, we have to find a way to talk about this because we have to find a way of saying you hurt me without hearing. I hate you because I think it's a conversation that we need to have. And clearly if one in three women are assaulted, how many men have done an assault and, and maybe not even recognized it as such because like, oh, I thought she liked it or, oh, I didn't understand consent. And so I just think this is a conversation we need to have without, without with, with seeking to listen and not seeking to, I guess, promote our own points or confirmation bias or whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I think that's, the, the binary thinking is such a yeah. difficult thing to kind of break through. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my buddy, Dan Koch, who does mm-hmm. the You Have Permission podcast, uh, actually talks about this a lot because he says a lot of the time, and so this is going to be re- in regards to like a theological kind of mm-hmm. conversation, but a lot of the times people who grew up in the super conservative fundamentalist background mm-hmm drop that and then take the opposite extreme and they become mm-hmm. a fundamentalist in their own right, just mm-hmm. a progressive one, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he said, the problem is that we're not actually helping people learning how to think. 
So they think yeah. automatically it's a binary, it's black or white, mm -hmm. this or that, you know, right or wrong. So instead, how can we have these conversations where people can actually learn how to think properly and introduce things like nuance and mm -hmm. reason, you know, th those mm -hmm. kind of things. And so I think that concept from a theological perspective, ditch the theology bit, add it into this conversation. I think it's the same mm -hmm. um, for all the things that you just said, because yeah. again, people just assume um, you know, like you said, with the, the whole racism bit, as mm -hmm. soon as you bring that up around the wrong mm -hmm. people, they're like, oh, you think I just hate black people, mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, right. or, I hate, or I hate white people. Mm -hmm. and it's not, it's not either or. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to help. And I think to your point that you've been making throughout this whole conversation is we need to have these kind of conversations, but always like, yeah, you know, with, with um, the kids in youth group and or mm -hmm. whoever, just in general. But I think one thing too that I want to like just hit on real quick and then I have two more things I want to ask you is mm -hmm. from the perspective of like okay moving forward how can we do better kind of questions mm -hmm. um but you talked about uh basically all people like good people being capable of doing bad things mm -hmm. and I think that's so true because it just from my perspective as a male mm -hmm. I know for sure the kind of thoughts that come to my mind mm -hmm. and to my friend's mind because they tell me um, when, you know, they see someone that they think is attractive or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I think the difference, I think, first off, like you said, acknowledging that those things are natural and are going to happen mm -hmm. is okay to say, wow, I find that girl very attractive, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. then teaching a boy to say, okay, but that doesn't mean she wants anything from me, Right. but not condemning them for responding, you know, mm -hmm. naturally for how mm -hmm. their bodies respond, but also at the mm -hmm. same time being like, yeah, dude, but the, the thing is you can't just go and act on that now. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the maturity and the nuance comes mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. um, and that was actually to his credit because he told me all sorts of very jacked up patriarchal, you know, quote unquote, biblical marriage mm -hmm. shit. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with my youth pastor one time when I was in high school, the guy that performed our wedding. Mm -hmm. And I brought up this exact question to him. I was like, dude, every time I see an attractive girl mm -hmm. in my brain, automatically, I want to have sex with that person. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, well, Josh, that's going to happen. That's mm -hmm. natural. Now you have to make the decision to say, okay, but this is my, you know, this is a fellow image bearer, mm -hmm. the Imago Dei, to use your language. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the right to just act on that. Mm -hmm. So ha let it come, pass mm -hmm. that thought out of your mind and mm -hmm. move on. Mm -hmm. And I, that was, I think, some of the most healthy advice I'd ever been given when I was young that I wish more people were told. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I just think so much that like, we just need to have the conversation yeah. and, and have it in a way that's not shaming, um, and, uh, and, um, understanding and really just honoring, like I said, the Mago day of every person involved. If, if women are created in the image of God, of course we respect them, but if men are created in the image of God, we also need to like respect and, and understand like, okay, this isn't, this is something that a lot of men experience, like, how can we talk about it in a way that's not shameful? Um, because otherwise it's just going to shut people down and they're just going to find that release elsewhere. And so we need to learn how to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so in regards to like, cause I mean, I don't know. I feel like we could sit here and talk all day um, mm -hmm. because there's so much that you cover in your book that we haven't even yeah. gone. Like we've barely scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. Um 
but maybe that's a good thing because that means people tomorrow when your book comes out, people go and buy it. Um, please. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, well, actually, we'll post something later on Instagram today too, mm-hmm. like kind of, hey, go do this thing. Mm-hmm. But um, just thinking about it, like moving forward, I thought you did a really good job of talking about I'm like, hey, this isn't a formula for marriage. Like, yeah. this is just kind of what works for us. But mm-hmm. like, even just thinking, what does then like a healthy egalitarian marriage mm-hmm. look like? Um, and yeah. then I'll follow that up. We can talk a little bit about sexual ethics after that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll shut it down for the day. Yeah. Um, so this is, it's so funny. I, I used to get this question all the time. Like, well, if you aren't in a complimentary marriage, like who has the Trump card when you can't agree? And I'm like, <laughs> And what other relationships do you have a trump card? <laughs> right. Like, it's like, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, if my friend and I are having a disagreement, I'm like, I'm older. So I am right in this conversation and this disagreement or this conversation that we're having. I just think it's a completely silly question. But um, anyways, I know a lot of people have asked me it. So when we're talking about marriage and there's, you know, there's complementarian and there's egalitarian. And I think egalitarian is just giving you the freedom to have discussions and to function in marriage the way that you were designed to function in marriage. So as an example, like I said, there's not formulas. It's not like all, if you're egalitarian, all men do the dishes and all women mow the lawn. Like that's how it actually works for my marriage because I hate emptying the dishwasher and my husband um, has allergies. And so he mows the lawn and he gets like hives and coffee and like itchy eyes and all this stuff. And so I like mowing the lawn. I like, I have a Apple watch and I try to get my calorie goal. So it helps me meet my calorie goal. (laughs) So I'm like, I love mowing the lawn. It meets my calorie goal. I like being outside. Um, I hate emptying the dishwasher and it's not something that he necessarily enjoys, but um, he does it because um, he loves me and (laughs) I do other things. And so it's just more like having a conversation. Like I do things I don't love as well. Like um, oftentimes I'm the one loading the dishwasher or I vacuum. I often I'm the one vacuuming and mopping our floors and he's the one cooking. And so it's just finding things that um, you're having a conversation about how do we, how can we carry this load of, of, of being in the house and the home of living this life together equally? How can we make compromises um, that makes it equal? And um, just like having these conversations, there's a really important point I want to bring up about um, our marriages, which I don't even talk about in the book and I wish I did, but this idea that women can't be equal in the world or in the workforce until men are equal in the home. So, so often women are viewed as the women that are in charge of the children. So say they both have jobs and one of the kids gets sick. It's obviously like everyone's like, oh, the woman does it. And, and oftentimes you'll see a man with his kids and they're like, oh, it's so nice for him to help with the kids. Like, no, they're his kids. It's not helping the kids. Like they are his children just as much as they're her children. It's not helping. It's a duty. It's a responsibility, just like housework is. And so I really want to break down this idea that women are supposed to be household managers, that they're supposed to be the ones in charge of the kids. It's a partnership and that's the way it should be. Sometimes in different areas, a man or woman might carry more responsibility. Maybe a dad, you know, maybe the mom is bringing in a lot of money. And so the dad stays at home with the kids. And so, again, it's not a formula, but if we can't make it so that men view uh, housework or um, children or anything like that as an equal responsibility as a woman, they cannot succeed elsewhere because uh, so often women are discriminating 
discriminated against in the workforce because they have all of these extra responsibilities at home and they can't dedicate as much to their work. And so we really need to shift that idea that men should be equally responsible for housework and child care and all of that stuff because it's their children and they're not helping. Like this is literally your children and this is your house and this is your backyard and these are your dogs as well as they are mine. And so no one, um, you know, that should really be an equal partnership of what that looks like. And so we talked earlier, I have two dogs, you have three. So I don't know how you do it, but I wash one dog and he washes the other dog. <laughs> like we, I walk one dog and he walks the other dog. My dog, or well, they're both our dogs, but the dog I walk usually poops more. So I'm picking up poop more on the walks, but the other dog has nastier poops, like way nastier poops. And it's way worse to pick up. So I'd rather pick up more nice little firm guys. And he has to pick up these nasty, like squishy things and that's fine because it like it evens out but we have these compromises of how like how that even works I'm going to be picking up poop more but he's picking up nasty poop and so it's just like having these conversations how can we make it sure it's an equal partnership and so I hope that makes sense it's just there's a ton of freedom just but just make sure that both parties are fully responsible neither side is helping the other it's both responsibilities working together so yeah no absolutely I love it I love it and that like um that's so funny the poop thing I hate <laughs> yeah. doing that. that like I hate doing that like I that two things I have a hard time with poop and vomit and like yeah that like I'll start gagging and then there's yeah. more vomit to yeah. clean up it's so difficult <laughs> see to think I will I will clean up clean up poop in the backyard like with the scoop thing so yeah. I can I mow the lawn or whatever but yeah in the house can't do it thank god Noel has no problem <laughs> with it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head and like, it's, I don't know, like I, for Noel and I, we just kind of approach things like, Hey dude, being an adult is really hard mm-hmm. and we're both just trying to figure it out together. And so mm-hmm. we just kind of go in it with that mentality. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is, it's not my house. It's our house. Mm-hmm. It's not my marriage. It's our marriage, right. you know, all, all those kind of things. And just really trying to like acknowledge that. And I don't know, it's, yeah, it's, I can't imagine it. And the other way around, like the, Mm -hmm. just the complimentarian thing, just, I can't get it through my mind. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't want that kind of responsibility. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I (laughs) I remember talking to Dustin before, like, obviously we're both egalitarian, but we would talk about like, what would it be like if you're, cause my personality is a lot more um, I'm a go-getter. I'm going to spearhead. I'm going to, I kind of, if we're talking about leaders and followers, I'm the one with the ideas and he's the one that helps make them happen. And so, um, and that way you could see it as a role reversal, but he's like, you know, what sounds like hell to me being responsible for your spiritual journey. <laughs> like, that's not fair to be responsible for your own spiritual journey and mine. And then having all the answers or pretending to have all the answers. That's just silly. I just, it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't. I'm so with so. you. I could not do it. I could not do it. Uh, yeah. But just, I guess one more thing, because um, mm-hmm. again, I want to be respectful of your time, mm-hmm. but something I think that is also super important and you dedicate a chapter to it in your book mm-hmm. is the idea of sex, like yeah. some kind of sexual ethic. Cause I know mm-hmm. I was never explicitly told this, but it was very mm-hmm. implicit. And I was given a book that mm-hmm. explicitly said it, that basically like, and I remember showing Noel and I was like, Noel, this book says that you're supposed to have sex with me whenever I want. And that's <laughs> how we have a healthy marriage. Um, 
I was never explicitly taught that, but that was kind of hinted at. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like a like an implicit teaching mm-hmm. based upon, well, if the dude's in charge and the wife has to submit, mm-hmm. then whenever the wife, blah, yeah. blah, blah, whatever. Um, so like as far as sexual ethics go, like how would you say like a, a healthy sex, like where what does a healthy sexual ethic look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess for the sake of this conversation. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to stay here, but maybe just within regards of marriage, but maybe mm-hmm. maybe it needs to be outside of that. Maybe we need mm-hmm. to say, okay, what does a sexual healthy ethic in general mm-hmm. look like? Um, because I'm, yeah, I'm kind of of the opinion that people are going to have sex outside of marriage, mm-hmm. regardless if you tell them they should or not. So mm-hmm. we should probably talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, I actually, so I talked to a Christian sex therapist about this. I've had several of them on my podcast, but I think we need to just break down the idea of what ethical sex even looks like. And what we were told in the church, it sounds like, is sex is ethical as long as it's in the context of marriage, which is extremely damaging because if you think about for example what you were taught and what so many other people are taught the idea that women need to have sex when they don't want to have sex when they're on their period when they've just given birth when they're feeling sick um all of these ideas that women are almost like sexual slaves to their husbands they need to be available no matter what in fact there's some teachers out there that say you can't rape your wife because you're entitled to her body this is all unethical sex Anytime both parties are not fully consenting, this is unethical sex. That is the simple fact of the matter. If I don't want to have sex and my husband wants to have sex and he has sex with me anyways, you know what that's called? It's called rape. That's that's forcing sex on someone and that, that without my consent, that is rape. And so we need to talk about uh, the fact that not only is unethical sex happening within marriage, not only is consent being violated, not only is like probably things that maybe someone's not comfortable with happening in the marriage bed. Oh, I saw this, you know, I want to do this. Um, so I think that we need to have a conversation about consent before we can have any conversations about ethical sex, because I think a lot of sex happening within marriages is, is very unethical because it is not honoring the Imago Day. It's not, when I think about sex as God created it, it's a way to connect and honor and experience pleasure for both parties involved. But so often it's only treated as the men's pleasure. In fact, let's talk about the woman's body. The woman has um, a clitoris and the only function of the clitoris is to have sexual pleasure. That's it has nothing, has no other use. So clearly sexual pleasure matters to God because she made made women with a a body part dedicated to sexual pleasure. So this, but in the church, it's all about the men's pleasure. And we don't talk about how to pleasure a woman or what might, she might find pleasurable. And so I think the whole question is, is not whether or not um, necessarily it's in the bounds of marriage. The question is, are you respecting and honoring? Is this a selfish act to get to get your release or whatever you want to call it, or is this an act of mutuality of loving and honoring one another? Um, and that's the question we need to be asking is sex ethical when it is, it's fully consenting when it's fully honoring, when both parties are seeking the sexual pleasure of the other. Um, and so I think those are all questions that we need to ask and we don't. So I, that's how I view sex. I think it should just be consent and we talk about consent and, and how to, to value one another's sexual pleasure and experience. So. Yeah. No, I dig it. I think, (laughs) 
that's so helpful too. And I, I, I mean, I don't remember where I read it, but I do. I also, I had read a different resource, a book mm-hmm. that was talking about, and for me, it was like mind blowing. I was like, holy shit, this makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I distinctly remember it because it was like, I was at, like we were visiting Noel's parents. And so we were like mm-hmm. staying in like her mm-hmm. old bedroom and stuff. And I was reading this book and I was like, dude, this guy is like saying how sex should be like this mutual, like mm-hmm. act of service for one another. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, that's so much more beautiful than just like whatever I was taught. Yeah. Sex is yeah. This, you know, basically gross thing. And you mm-hmm. get this idea with like just horny guys, like mm-hmm. eight or something. Yeah. Um, but just that idea that, and that always stuck with me, this idea of sex as a, as mutually serving mm-hmm. your partners, a way to connect in a way that like, um, so at least for me, like I, my wife and I were in a monogamous, monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. in a way that I don't connect with anybody else, mm-hmm. um, there's like so much like beauty in that and, and, and looking at it as a, as a way to honor one another, um, yeah. is a, is a really cool thing. So mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah. sharing. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for, I mean, like I can only imagine writing a book like this is not an easy thing to do No. Uh, because it's very personal. You share mm-hmm. some stories that like, I mean, I can't even imagine being in situations that, um, you know, you share either situations about yourself, but even with like mm-hmm. the friends that you made and the, the mm-hmm. people that you came into contact with and all that kind of stuff. So thank you for taking that risk and putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners definitely go check it out. Um, but if they want to like find you, connect with you, listen to your podcast, you know, know more about mm-hmm. your work, where can they go to find you, our listeners? And then I'll also link all of that in our, our notes. Yeah, um, you can find me... I'm the only Megan Chance in the world. So So if you find my name, I don't know if you should, I'm kind of worried now, like now that more people are like hating on me, I'm like, what will you find if you Google? I don't know. But- Haters gonna hate me. Haters gonna hate. But you can find me on Instagram. Um, My podcast is Faith and Feminism. My book is Women Rising, Learning to Listen to Reclaiming Our Voice. Uh, My website's Megan Chance. Uh, I have a Twitter, it's Megan Chance. And so you should be able to find me in all those places. Dope. Right on. What sounds good, Megan. Thank you so much again for hanging out today. Thank you for uh, sharing your story. Sorry, I'm writing down the website so I don't forget. I have ADHD and I forget stuff. No worries. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck in everything you do. And this was a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah. Have you come back and hang out with us again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sounds good, Megan. Take care. Bye.